Today is Monday, June 4. This is the sixth day of our spring metta meet retreat with Sayada Uindaka. So you're getting close to the end, and you can't leave yet. <laughs> Though if your retreat is anything like my retreats often are, you've thought about leaving a few times. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. I'll start with uh, an acknowledgement and a gratitude uh, for your practice and your effort, um, your sincerity. Perhaps also your curiosity and interest in the, in the Dhamma, in the Buddha Dhamma, the Buddhist teachings. Um, no matter how often I do this work, whether I'm sitting a retreat or, or teaching a retreat, there are always, you know, one or two or three, there's a few occasions where it really just it strikes me in a, um, a heartfelt and poignant, uh, insignificant way or big way. Uh, there's sort of a robustness in a sense to, despite how many times it's happening, just seeing so clearly that what we're doing here uh, goes against the normal momentum and intentionality of our culture to a large extent. and. It does feel like a blessing when that awareness arises and I'm able to acknowledge that whether it's for a day or a week or a month or whatever it is that I'm in that container, I'm, I'm part of that container. So in a, in a sense, uh, that gives my life a meaning and, and, and purpose and uh, what that does for me is it it, it dissolves some of the grasping at a better life or a better world. There's the sense of like, oh, like actually, what else can I do? You know? Or I'm already doing it, you know. <clears throat> and so I really appreciate uh, the way that awareness uh, shines forth, uh, in particular on retreat, which requires all of us to to be here together and uh, following these uh, simple but not always easy to execute instructions. Two nights ago, I asked Sayada during uh, juice in the early evening, which follows the the Dharma talk. Um, I asked him, which is more important, metta meditation or vipassana, insight meditation? And I, I suspect I've probably asked him this question before, and uh, sometimes I'll ask him questions multiple times, uh, not necessarily because I forget. I mean, if it's a more complex Dharma teaching, uh, 
maybe I didn't grasp the concept the way I might like, so I, I ask again to have further conversation. But I've learned also that he'll answer questions uh, not so much in a rote way or a procedural way, but rather there's something fresh about how he comes at a, at a question depending on the time or the conditions. He paused for a little while. He didn't answer right away, which, I, which was unexpected for me. And he said, well, right now, metta meditation is more important. And he talked a little bit about how many of us have a hard time cultivating metta. We spoke a little bit about how it can be particularly difficult to do metta for self, though that's not true for everybody. But mostly it was more of a a cultural analysis that as he travels and meets people in different parts of the world that it strikes him that right now at this time metta is is more important. And one thing he said about that is that it's a foundation for insight practice or vipassana. It's sort of a, uh, a base. There's something about metta that uh, facilitates insight practice, understanding. And so he paused for a little while and he, he, he thought a little bit more and he said, but ultimately insight practice is more important. <laughs> <laughs> because it leads directly to wisdom that alleviates dukkha that alleviates suffering. So clearly, clearly we need both. That Vipassana, and this is, this is true of the, of the suttas, that, that Vipassana is most important, that Vipassana is most important because it leads to insight, leads many of us to make metta a secondary practice. Yet this hierarchy fails to account for the fact that our vipassana practice is subject to many more hindrances, some of which unpenetrable in the absence of metta. In particular, dosa which Sayadars talked about quite a bit already, D-O-S-A in the Pali. Irritation, anger, frustration, ill will. I include even mild irritation, uh, even just strong not wanting, you know. Um, that disrupts a calm and stable mind that can see clearly. It disrupts... Uh, or blocks a, a really open, bright heart, right? Even just even just a little bit of wanting. It's quite interesting, quite profound, actually, to to see that so clearly on retreat. To spend seven days just seeing that would be a monumental achievement. It would be a level of understanding of the human mind and happiness that most people in the world will never fully grasp.
And yet, we have opportunities to see that on retreat all the time. And if we are looking closely, one of the things we notice is that the mind is not satisfied with that. Right? It wants more. Right? And that's it. We're, we're seeing the same thing again. So, from this perspective, metta is one of the most precious human qualities. It's one of the most precious human qualities as well as a state in service of real liberation. Both, it is beca- both because it is marked by a deep happiness and well-being, and because its presence arises in the absence of hindrances which block the development of wisdom. While metta sees the goodness in all people, insight confirms that everything blocking metta is part of the conditioned self. As metta increases, self-indulgence and self-protection decrease. With this right attitude, we don't aspire toward metta to get something in return in the conventional sense, but rather in the absence of grasping, the conditions are right for metta to arise naturally. The practice invites us to test and eventually trust this. By renouncing our usual habits of mind, we begin to contact an underlying sense of safety and trust from which we can then let go even further. This unfolds gradually if we are persistent and diligent, eventually leading us to what the Burmese call the metta mind state, or true metta. Though we often struggle to experience metta, I believe metta itself is closer to our true nature than our suffering. I think many of us are often, uh, or we learn in a sense, uh, through the course of our life, that since there is in fact so much dukkha, um, that that is ultimately who we are or close to who we are. Meanwhile, a state like metta um, needs all of this effort and help and support and teachings and techniques to cultivate. And even with that, often it's not there. It seems too difficult. It seems like <clears throat> a good idea, uh, but not for me. You know. My mind is too fill-in-the-blank, or my life has been too fill-in-the-blank. But in a sense, I think what we're seeing is just how far we've strayed from our true nature. I think we're seeing in this um, the density uh, of our delusion and confusion. Um, And 
uh, I surmise from this the complexity of the world that we're all born into and how that uh, fragments the goodness uh, that ultimately we're all capable of, that the Dharma suggests uh, we're all capable of. The Dharma proposes that everything that obstructs metta is conditioned and impermanent. When those conditions are removed through continuous diligent practice, the mind relaxes and the heart begins to open, undefended, confident, and yet humble. If and when you feel like there's a development, there's an achievement, there's a success, there's an insight, or there's a flowering of what you might think is metta, there's a sense. <clears throat> and immediately thereafter, there's a sense of, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, kindly remind yourself that you're not there yet. <laughs> When the mind becomes purified in this way, there is less a sense of a self who is happy, and more of a pervasive sense of well-being accompanied by a natural wish to share that with others. Radiation happens rather than we radiate. Tibetan teacher Kempo Funsuk writes, We and all others wish for happiness, but may not know that Dharma is the virtuous activity that brings it about. Metta meditation helps point out our mistaken view that grasping at impermanent objects brings satisfaction or lasting happiness. Alternatively, and I would say fortunately for us, when we release our attachment to the ways we thought we could be happy, we see how those attachments bound us in a contracted mind that suffers in which needs to protect itself. We get easily agitated and dosa arises often without us even noticing it. Sayadaw said in uh, one of the interviews in response to one of you, he said, don't expect anything in return from the object. Don't expect anything in return from the object. So we can and should have intentions. In fact, teaching the Dharma is often about clarifying intentions 
in rousing motivation and energy. That's, uh, that tends to be useful. But to expect something from the object is to activate the mind state of grasping that makes the intention harder to complete. Which I think is one of the reasons why it's useful to have simple techniques repeated over and over and over again. One of the things that I've, you know, in working with Sayadaw, for example, I, I went through layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of, of my own ideas about how I could slightly tweak or change the instructions. <laughs> Because I know something about this practice and still get to where I want it to go. Right? This is one of the things that's so beautiful about, about a teacher-student relationship when there's um, safety in it enough to really surrender. Right? Um, I stayed long enough to see that part of myself and to see it not working. Right. And along the way, he never pushed me away, he never criticized me, he was just seeing my mind, or stubborn mind, right? But then, after all of that time and struggle and wasted energy, there's just a realization, oh, all I had to do was what he asked me to do. <laughs> Which was so much easier than what I was trying to do, actually. So much easier. In fact, the metta teachings are so simple that I think we sometimes uh, we we can't we can't fathom the effectiveness in the con in the context of that simplicity, and so we end up changing the instructions somehow. We do a little of something else, or we just do a little bit more, a little bit less, or. And for me, I've seen this play out both in the practice of insight and metta, you know. There's quite a bit of freedom in that. Like, I don't, I don't actually have to figure it out so much. I can just, I can just follow the techniques. You know, I can just do the practice. So I don't have to work so hard in that, in that, in that sense. I want to read this short passage from Kempo Funsuk one more, one more time. We and all others wish for happiness, but may not know that Dharma is the virtuous activity that brings it about. On retreat, we are testing the claim that Dharma practice brings about happiness. And for me, this means practicing with doubt. Doubt is one of the five hindrances. If you, uh, by any small chance, have experienced any doubt on this retreat, um, I would like to suggest that you um, forgive yourself 
right now, just forgive yourself from having that um, mind state arise in, um, on some level, uh, block the practice or make it harder or uh, affect your confidence, right? It's one of the five basic states that the Buddha essentially promised would arise in our practice and in in our life. So retreat is the place, I think, in our practice where we test the claim that the Dharma brings about happiness more than any, any place else in our life. And throughout this testing, our own doubt arises. It's simply part of the path. We have doubt often that repeating phrases over and over again will work. How could that work? This is what some teachers call dry metta. Some of you practicing here in the United States may have been exposed to a variety of adaptations of uh, metta as it's taught in the Vasudhi Magga, which is where Sayada is teaching from, which is where I've been teaching metta from for the past two years. And those other uh, also useful ways of practicing Metta are sometimes called wet metta, where they tend to use imagery or narrative to evoke a uh, something near true metta or something near the, the metta mind state. And often a little bit of sentimentality uh, will come in as a vehicle uh, to loosen up some of the dosa. And we can, we can benefit, from, I would say that we can benefit from that, and that can be a, a stage or a stepping stone to the metta mind state. And also some of us get stuck there because it has a feel-good quality, and we mistake that for true metta. Right? Regardless, many of us have been exposed to that way of practicing, and so there's, uh, there can be a coldness or a... Or a um, a mechanistic feeling of this sort of rote repetition. You know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be well. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be well. May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be well. And with diligence, with perseverance, ultimately with continuity, This way of practicing turns the mind and opens the heart. It begins to it begins to um, create a kind of protective shield, right? And on the outside are the hindrances, and on the inside is a kind of simple, cool um, well-being, right? Um, Abiding in the absence of grasping and clinging. Doubt questions the instructions, the teachers, the retreat form, and the precepts. 
Doubt, of course, questions our own ability. This is possible when we forget that our suffering is conditioned and therefore not permanent. You know, here in the States, uh, I think many people are drawn to the Dharma by way of hearing the First Noble Truth, that uh, suffering is a natural part of life. Um, this came up at lunch today with, with Mimi and, and Saida. We were, um, actually, we, we had a conversation at breakfast that revolved a little bit around people who had died in our lives and uh, just tangentially uh, came back to that during lunch, and Mimi just said, you have a body in this lifetime and you suffer. You know, it's like, that's the, the clarity of the Dharma, it's just seeing that, like, oh, yeah, like, no delusion, right? And so many of us come to the Dharma because we feel seen by that teaching. It normalizes us in, in some way. And while that might be true for people in other parts of the world, one of the things that seems more true for people in Myanmar than here is that they come to the Dharma for cessation. They come to the Dharma for the alleviation of suffering, for Nibbana, Nirvana, awakening. So it's harder in our culture because we weren't steeped in this tradition. We weren't, uh, m- most of us were not raised in a setting that challenged more coarse mind states and unskillful behavior and taught a kind of, um, taught that a, a purity and a wisdom and a kindness and a compassion were completely natural, right? Just uh, obscured or covered over a little bit, but really, you know, if we could just get the, get the dirt off the top, like there it is. Um, quite a bit less doubt, uh, at least in the, at least in the uh, settings in, in Myanmar that I've, I've practiced in, a little bit less doubt, and it's, it can be really useful to, to, to be around that. You know, it's one of the reasons I like to spend time with Sayadaw because there's, there's just no doubt remaining, right? And so when you're talking with him about the Dharma or with life struggles, you're having a conversation with someone who doesn't have any doubt, right? So there's transmission in that. You're, you're, that's, an, that's an actual mind state. Like, you know, that's... It's transformative to be in relationship to that kind of a mind. Right, it's pointing to something that's possible. So doubt limits how much effort we invest in the practice. Doubt tricks us in such a way that we might not recollect that metta practice has been done this way for 2,600 years and has sustained itself based on its functionality, on the basis of its effectiveness. 
And you can take that as a contemplation at any time that you're struggling. And that's true of the Dharma in general. That's true of insight practice. That's true of compassion practice. That's true of the value of sila, or ethical conduct. Not just on retreat. Not just on retreat. Um, On this lifetime, actually. So, when you're not experiencing metta, insights might revolve around the presence of the hindrance of doubt and how that affects your energy, effort, and continuity of practice. Just to see these hindrances is sufficient. And then you can simply return your attention to the object of metta. That's the teaching. Those are the instructions. Humility, which is a foundation and fruit of metta, is cultivated by following the forms of practice. Now, metta, I think, is particularly difficult because we set up an expectation, which is metta, (laughs) the metta mind state. And when we don't achieve that, we are often confronted with one or more of the three root hindrances or poisons, lobha, lobha, greed, dosa, There it is again, irritation, anger, frustration, ill will, and or moha, delusion, with its many faces. And I think in a certain way we set ourselves up uh, for this difficulty in metta more maybe even than mindfulness. Now that's not true for everybody, but... um, You know, to learn to bring the attention to the breath or to the feeling of sensation in the body um, and, and, and within a fairly short amount of time to notice that you have some relative control over your attention. You know, if the thoughts you're having are not too triggering or too enticing. You know, if, you know with, some, with some practice, you, oh yeah, I can bring my attention back. Right? That's the task. Right? Just just come back. Oh, there it is again, the breath. Oh, there it is again, my right hand resting on my leg. I did it. I'm doing mindfulness. You know, it's like, okay, you have some relative control. Right? I mean, there's a steep learning curve, and you keep getting pulled away into, you know, thoughts about the future or past, if you're in a difficult life stage, if there's an illness or something's going on at work, and, you, you know, it's like, you know, And if you get a little bit of momentum with your mindfulness, um, there's some quiet and stillness on the inside. Right? And you get a taste of that. And then with meta practice, 
we explain this profound state of mind that is loving, benevolent, friendly, which for us means open and vulnerable as Westerners, which is also not something where uh, we, we tend to be uh, invited to applaud and cultivate, right? And we're, we're, it's suggested to us the possibility of being friendly and loving under all circumstances to all beings. And obviously that's not going to happen right away. Right? And so all of these uh, challenges are compounded in the way the practice is presented. And so we, if we don't see this as a long-term journey, if we don't have an understanding of path, um, we're going to get too frustrated too easily, too quickly, <laughs> etc. And yet I don't think this is actually a problem. Because if you connect in um, with the vulnerability, even the frustration itself, right? Even the absence of that which you seek can evoke the sincerity of your wish to have it be different. And at that point, you're supporting metta, right? Metta is the aspiration, the felt sense of wanting self or other. It's just, it's just is deeply connecting with uh, the pure wish that happiness prevail. One of the things that I've found is that doesn't require happiness to actually be here. You see that? Nonetheless, we hear the instructions, we have some relative level of inspiration, and so we come to the practice, and what happens? Well, often not metta. As Venerable Veranani, uh, who attends to and teaches with Sayada uh, in Myanmar, says, when you come to practice metta, everything that's not metta will arise. And the first time, and she said that, I've heard her say that a lot, the first time she said that to me, um, really gave me a lot of space, right? Really gave me a lot of space, really normalized a lot of my own experience. Nonetheless, this leaves us with a dilemma often in our practice about how to move forward. Uh, this dilemma, I think, at least, at least for me, uh, tests our resolve and our willingness to step outside the familiar. Dharma practice is a practice of modulated risk-taking. If we continue to go to the same places, if we replay the same behaviors in body, speech, and mind, we get the same information that we've had for a very long time, maybe our whole life, maybe multiple lifetimes. 
There's no new perspective. There's no new insight. There's no new knowledge. <clears throat> if every time we go out in the rain, we wear a hat and tall boots and a raincoat, and we carry an umbrella, we will never truly know the rain. We can't feel it. No matter how much we read about the rain or watch the rain from inside the building, the rain will never penetrate. So we don't truly know the rain. We only have an idea of the rain. But the point of Dharma practice is to see that we have a choice. We can feed the hindrances further or we can simply return to the object of metta, taking the power out of the hindrances until they are gone completely, if not only temporarily. If you want to get rained on by the Dharma, you will need to assume a certain level of surrender which is why we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha each day. To remind us that we can't rely on what we already know. Our ideas, views, beliefs, and habits have not freed us completely yet. So it just does not make sense that if we keep them up, there will somehow be a different outcome. That's delusion. The alternative is to give yourself completely to the path. Represented in simple terms on retreat by following the instructions as closely as possible. To support this, I have come to found to find it useful to reflect on the fact or truth that my life is short. When I am in touch with the truth of how short my life is, the preciousness of retreat comes into focus. Seeing the preciousness of retreat and the preciousness of our life helps us assume a position where we can more easily recognize that the hindrances are fed through our identification with them. Alternatively, in the absence of this identification, coupled with the continuous application of the meditation technique, we plant the seeds for the hindrances subsiding. Any moment we are free from the hindrances, we are closer to metta. And we are in a better position for penetrating insight to offer us a glimpse into the unconditioned, empty nature of phenomena, which is not separate 
from our own true nature. Out of such an experience, we see the truth of the entire path with crystal clarity. The Four Noble Truths in the Way to the End of Suffering are understood. However, until we arrive at that place, we are left with a single choice. More practice. Regarding the metta practice specifically, the Buddha instructed us to reflect on the danger of dosa in the virtue or value of patience. I see dosa uh, as a term that represents a scale, if you will, a sliding scale. And on one end of the scale, um, there's mild irritation, um, aversion is its own concept in the Dharma, which is different than dosa. But nonetheless, for uh, sake of presentation, down on this end, uh, a slightly heated aversion can very easily become a mild form of dosa, right? So we've got uh, irritation, frustration, Anger and, and up, you know, over on this side, we've got ill will actually um, intending harm towards someone else based on the assumption that that'll somehow make us feel better or it will uh, restore something, right? So, what the in, in these teachings are uh, coming from the Visuddhimagga uh, attributed to the, to the Buddha. And so, the Buddha is saying to help you with your metta practice. Uh, reflect on the danger of dosa, right? Uh, and you know, one of the things worth pointing out, though it's 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 less necessary to point it out to a group of people who have been practicing metta for a week. You know, dosa is an active mind state. Often, if we, if we see it as a scale, um, we all experience quite a bit of dosa, right? And it can be quite interesting and, and certainly very useful to, to, I mean, this is more of insight practice, but it, but it comes naturally through, through metta. Um, you know, becoming interested in, in really the impact of dosa on our mind and our life. Right? It's, it's, it's quite significant. And of course, metta is considered the antidote to dosa. We, we cultivate metta to work with this pervasive mind state that plagues uh, our whole life and obstructs happiness. Dosa is described as having a heating quality. And I mean, you can, I mean, if someone gets really angry, they're, you know, you can almost see the heat in their body and sometimes, you know, skin color will shift a little bit, particularly if they have light skin, you know, like, you know, generally shift and you kind of redden a little bit and um, sometimes you can see the smoke coming out the ears, right? You know, and the body clenches and there's kind of like, it's heating, right? Have you ever got really angry and actually your, your, your temperature, your body temperature increased and you actually got hot, right? 
So it's heating. Anger can be heating. Dosa can be heating. And metta is described as a cool mind state. Often when people are practicing metta or they're new to it, they talk about feelings of warmth. That's, uh, that's a place on a progressive path toward a cool mind state. Right? Very calm, cool, uh, uh, in many cases a very, very bright mind state. And it, and it, it just sees equally the goodness in beings. And there's a, there's a sort of a natural arising of uh, want, a feeling connected to and wanting that goodness for all others, right? There's no jealousy or greed in there to disrupt that, uh, pure, that purity, in a sense. It, what it feels like is that it, 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 there's a kind of mirroring as if the goodness in oneself were also in another and the goodness in the other were also in oneself. It's not clear where it begins and ends. There's just a radiant goodness and we're abiding in that together. Right? You can see where there would be no enemies in that. You can see where that's a protective mind state, these images we get from the suttas. So metta is like finding the uh, protection and shade of a large canopied tree after walking many, many miles without water across a hot desert exposed to the sun the whole time. And finally, you know, you just, you come in under the canopy and you just sit down and you just, ah, and it's cool. You know, and you some well-being there, maybe even happy. You've gotten out from something, in the sense you kind of you've escaped something that was um, agitating and painful. Certainly not restful. Certainly not restful. And the Buddha said also uh, to reflect on the virtue of patience. So you've all been practicing now for six days, and uh, I would assume that. This makes sense. You, you, it, it requires patience, doesn't it? Right? Sometimes you had patience and sometimes you didn't, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Was it easier when you had patience? When it easier, was it easier when you brought the attitude of kindness to all the moments when metta wasn't there? Yeah. A lot of you are nodding your head. Just like when you brought self-criticism and self-degradation to the moments when mindfulness, when, when, when metta wasn't there, um, that became harder in some way, right? So patience is, is really being gentle with yourself. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quality of gentleness, maybe, maybe even forgiveness, it, you know, probably not in any way an accurate rending of, a, of the teachings to lump forgiveness in here, but let's put it there, like, um, a lot of us need it, but would benefit from it. Patience means accepting the conditions as they are until they change, whatever those conditions are. 
uh, writer Francis Wilshire says, happiness is really a deep, harmonious inner satisfaction and approval. Happiness is really a deep, harmonious inner satisfaction and approval. And again, I alluded to this earlier um, in a different context. But here I want to suggest that acceptance is also a form of humility. Acceptance is also a form of humility. Acceptance is thwarted by imposing upon ourselves a requirement that we are anything other than we are right now. I'd like to read a short passage from the Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Retreat is hard work. I watched from my cottage window a few days ago uh, a man build a stone sitting bench out of granite, the top of which probably weighed, I'm going to say, four or five hundred pounds. It was like an eight foot long piece of granite about this thick and about this wide. And without any machinery um, and a two by twelve and a long um, steel bar and a pile of rocks, uh, over the course of what I'm guessing would have been four or five hours, he like an inch at a time, he, 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 in one end of the granite slab at a time, he got it up from the ground, up about a foot and a half onto these two other pieces of granite, and he would, you know, he would, he would, he would, you know, he was using leverage, he was using all these sticks and boards to try to, steel rods and boards to try to use, le- to create leverage, and he would, he would lift one end like an inch or two, and then he would, he would kind of hold it, and he would, he, would, he would grab some smaller rocks, and he would stick them under, and then he would, and he would let the weight down under those rocks. And he'd stand back, and he'd kind of, he'd put his arm on the, and he'd look at it, you know. And he'd kind of look around, and he'd see what else he had. And he'd go get another rock, and he'd bring it over, and, he'd, you know, and then he'd lay the 2 by 12 over that. And then he'd be like, and you'd see, and you'd see the granite would go, and he'd stick a little shim in there, right? And he'd sit back and he'd wait. And I stood for like an hour watching him, which is kind of like sitting up here watching you. And I thought, I don't know if he's going to do it. Like. I, 
somebody around here has got to have enough money to buy a bulldozer or something and just <laughs> pick the thing up, right? And he did it. You know, he's like, I mean, I had, to, I had to come up here and do stuff. Like, I went back later and I was actually there when he finally finished it. Like, I actually, you know, I was able to, it was, it was lovely, it was beautiful. I was actually able to, to, to watch him do it at the end and you know, get it up there. And, I mean, in my view, it's a little crooked, but. <laughs> But, but retreat is like that. Is, retreat is kind of like that, isn't it? Right? <laughs> so re, re, retreat can be difficult, and retreat can be, it can be even overwhelming. But retreat as this thing that's seven days long that ends way out there, or retreat from the perspective of 6.30 a.m. when the day doesn't end till nine is overwhelming. But just this moment is not usually, right? right? Don't worry about whether you can do the whole day or the whole week. Just do this moment. Just do till the bell rings. Just get the slab of granite a half an inch higher and sit back and take a rest. Just do till lunch, right? Don't even put it all on, don't even put all your expectations on this retreat. Come back again. Do it again. (coughs) Right? Practice when you go home. So retreat is difficult, but retreat is also really easy. You're really off the hook. You are really completely off the hook of the burdens that you impose upon yourself every day of your life. If you measure yourself only by the sincerity of your wish to be happy, rather than the quantity of happiness, you are supporting metta directly. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've had these uh, red flowers up here um, since the start of retreat. Three ninety nine at Trader Joe's. <laughs> um, in Buddhist culture, red symbolizes the blessings that practice calls forth. Red symbolizes the blessings that practice calls forth. So I encourage you, as Sayadaw uh, will say at the beginning or the end often when he's in the room, um, may you uh, have the capacity, may you have the effort, may you have the willingness. May the conditions be right for you to practice diligently. The blessings or the fruit of the practice come through the effort or energy that we give to the practice.
And if Sayadaw's teachings or my teachings haven't clarified or inspired enough, I will end with a passage from Diana Ross. (laughs) Of course, from the all-woman 60s supergroup, the Supremes. It's my house, and I live here. I want to tell you. It's my house, and I live here. There's a welcome mat at the door, and if you come on in, you're going to get much more. There's my chair. I put it there. Everything you see is with love and care. It's my house, and I live here. I want to tell you. It's my house and I live here. There's a welcome mat at the door. And if you come on in, you're going to get much more. There's my chair. I put it there. Everything you see is with love and care. Thank you.